We, uh, we're tracking through Mark at uh, the project. We're up to uh, Mark 13, 24 to 37. Last week uh, I, uh, I spoke about uh, eschatology. Who knows what es- eschatology is? What is it? It's a big word. That's not what it means, but that's, that's a descriptive statement. What is it? End times. All right. Um, and uh, we're doing end times because Jesus is doing end times in uh, Mark 13. So I've got a question for you. You can have a quick discussion about this. Um, and it's not a trick question, but it is a very, very difficult one. I want to know, I'm going to give you like 90 seconds to have a quick chat to the person next to you about it. What does, what does, do's, use? What does eschatology, sorry, no, I think it's, hang on, let me get my grammar right. What do eschatology and One Direction have in common? Go, you've got 90 seconds, 90 seconds, quick. I'm serious. Thirty seconds. There's a five million dollar cash prize for the person who can get it. Keep going. Uh, well, that's good. All right, anyone got a suggestion they want to throw out? What, what do eschatology and uh, end times, sorry, and end times, eschatology and One Direction have in common? Yeah, what? Okay, that's very nice, metaphorically, yeah. Of the apocalypse. Yeah, that's very exciting. There you go. <laughs> that's not it, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But that's very inventive, yes. They, they don't sound good or they do? They don't. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Anyone else got a thought? Like One Direction's the Antichrist? That, that could be one. <laughs> Maybe. Um, Mark of the Beast. Yeah. Maybe they're going to bring on the end times <laughs> by their singing. I don't know. All right. So what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to give you a little bit of help and then I'm going to throw it back to you to see if you, can, if you can work this one out, right? So for those who are like Teeny Bopper, kind of like listening to One Direction, they've got a song out at the moment called Perfect. Has anyone heard that? And we'll just read the words to the song Perfect and then I'm going to give you a chance to answer the same question again. All right, you ready for this? I might never be your knight in shining armour. I might never be the one you take home to mother and I might never be the one who brings you flowers but I can be the one, be the one tonight. When I first saw you from across the room, I could tell you were curious. Oh, yeah. Girl, I hope you're sure what you're looking for because I'm not good at making promises. This is a love song, right? Just in case you're wondering. Uh, But if you like causing trouble up in hotel rooms and if you like having secret little rendezvous, if you'd like to do the things you know that we shouldn't do, then baby, I'm perfect. Baby, I'm perfect for you. And if you like midnight driving with the windows down, that's really risque, isn't it? And if you like going places we can't even pronounce... If you like to do whatever you've been dreaming about, then baby, you're perfect. Baby, you're perfect. So let's start right now. I might never be the hands you put your heart in or the arms that hold you 
any time you want them. But that don't mean that we can't live here in the moment because I can be the one you love from time to time. When I first saw you from across the room, I could tell that you were curious. Oh yeah, girl, I hope you're sure what you're looking for because I'm not good at making promises. And if you like cameras flashing every time we go out, oh yeah. And if you're looking for someone to write your breakup songs about, baby, I'm perfect, baby, we're perfect. See, everyone, I haven't even said anything. You're all laughing, right? This is like, this is a love song, people. He said, happy Valentine's Day. Is it the 14th? It is too. All right. Can you take 30 seconds? Can you have another quick crack? Based on this song, what do One Direction and Eschatology have in common? 30 seconds, quick. Anyone got anything further on, uh, on that? I mean, that, those words will bring on the second coming, probably. <laughs> At least for, if, you're, uh, if you're married to a guy who starts singing them, they probably will. For that guy, anyway, they'll bring on the second coming. Any ideas? All right. Let me, uh, let me tell you what I'm thinking. What woman who is older than 25 and sober is going to want a guy who's singing those songs? You with me? I, I might never be the hands you put your heart in. Yeah, that's great. That's a real... Yeah, I, I want to be with that guy. That would be a really cool guy to be with. He's going to be really fulfilling. Like most of the women in this room are like over 25, I assume. Not all of you, but most of you are over 25 and you're just going, I wouldn't go anywhere near that guy, right? That guy's an idiot, okay? Are you with me, ladies? All right. What, what are they doing in this song? What One Direction I think are doing in this song is they're actually disconnecting the deeper hope about love in favour of a shallow reality. Does that make sense? So there's something really deep that's going on in love, in a commitment, and that's why you got lines like, I might never be the hands you put your heart in. You just kind of go, isn't that what you want to do? Isn't that the point of it? Isn't that the point of actually loving someone is that you put your, your heart in their hands and you're in their arms when, when you need them, you know, and they can, they can hold you and they can care for you. Isn't that, like, that's the goal of marriage in a sense, isn't it? But what they're doing is they're disconnecting the deeper reality in favour of a shallow, superficial, temporary one. And here's the connection to eschatology, right? The church typically uh, has had lots of different opinions and has caused a lot of trouble with eschatology. And what can tend to happen in the church is that people disconnect eschatology from their experience, all right? Because it's too complex. Either people go too far with it or they interpret it too much or they make claims that don't happen or they're just too intense about it do you get what i'm saying and so people in the church just throw their hands up and they just go i'm not going to even do eschatology anymore all right i'm just going to stay away from eschatology now you know what the problem with that is is um if you stay away from eschatology you actually stay away from a core human longing and desire all right because i bet you there's not one person in this room that at times doesn't have a really strong longing for everything to be right again for everything to be restored, for everything to just go the way that it's meant to be. 
I mean, the biblical word for that is shalom, and it doesn't just speak of peace, it speaks of peace and wholeness. So it's like God's got this plan, not just to bring about peace, but to bring about a peace where everything is operating the way it's meant to operate. And I would submit to you today that I reckon you must have that lots of times. And it comes out often with humans, it comes out when really bad things happen. People go, it's not meant to happen like this. This is not what's meant to happen. He was a good man. She was a good lady. Why is that happening to them? And all those kind of comments are this kind of internal human longing that's just kind of going, it's not meant to be like this and I'm longing for a day where it won't be like this. You with me? And I think you've got it. I think I've got it. And you know, that longing is an eschatological longing. So it's actually going to strengthen the church to talk about eschatology as long as we're careful about the way that we do it rather than weaken it. And so we don't want to be like, hopefully, do you see the connection between one, the One Direction song and what I'm talking about here? You don't want to just disconnect eschatology off because it's difficult and people blow it with eschatology all the time, right? You need to keep that on there. Otherwise, you're just going to have this longing inside of you that is just going to be hanging out all the time, just going, when is this? How am I going to get this satisfied? Well, it gets satisfied uh, by eschatology, by the fact that there's going to be a grand finale, all right and we haven't got there yet all right there's going to be a grand finale so what, what i want to do today is i want to read through uh, mark 13 starting in verse 24 so if you've got your bibles you can uh, you can read through it there or you can read it on the screen apologies if the screen gets a bit small at times the text but we'll have a crack at it eh? mark 13 verse 24 but in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its, branches become, its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his own work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. These uh, two messages are a little bit kind of more technical than what I normally kind of get into. So uh, I hope that you can just kind of hang with me today, right? I want to do a quick recap. Last week I talked about biblical prophecies in the sense of a mountain range. Uh, biblical prophecies often uh, have multiple fulfillments. They're not necessarily in chronological order. So you can read a biblical prophecy and it looks like one if you're standing side on to a mountain range. But when you actually look at it side on, you see a bunch of different peaks. Um, we're going to look at this section today in, in Mark 13 and we'll see that it actually has, uh, I think, multiple fulfilment and uh, hopefully you'll see that. So here's the three things I want to cover today. 
Um, I think Mark 13 actually tells us a prophecy of the cross, okay? A foretelling of the cross. Uh, I'll get into more detail in a minute, but it's really interesting that the very next section that we do is the Passion. We start the Passion basically at the beginning of Mark 14. It's the story of Jesus' crucifixion. So I think Mark 13 tells us about a, a prophecy of the cross, an unusual theophany, and a usual theophany response, all right? That's, uh, that's where we're going today. So this section in Mark, I'm, I'm just going to like take uh, five minutes here to try and persuade you, well, to share with you maybe my view that I think this section in Mark actually isn't specifically about the coming of Jesus, but it's actually about Jesus dying on the cross, okay? Almost, well, most people interpret it as the second coming where Jesus is going to come back for his people. I think... You'll see the overlap there in a sec, but uh, I think it's first and foremost a prophecy about the cross. If you uh, go back to Mark, I'm just going to zip through and give you a couple of reasons why that's the case. If you go back to verse 14, it talks to you about a, the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to, to be. All right. Last week, you can go and listen to last week's message, but last week I talked about how there was a guy in the intertestamental period between the end of the Old Testament and the New Testament who uh, came into the temple, set up a, uh, an idol to the god Zeus and then sacrificed a pig on the altar, which for the Jews is pretty, pretty repulsive sort of stuff. That is, seems to be what Daniel was talking about, about the prophecy of the abomination of desolation. I think um, this has got to be Jesus on the cross, all right? There's no bigger abomination than Jesus actually being on the cross, God being on a Roman cross and bearing the sins of the whole world. And then uh, in Mark 19, it says, For in those days there will be such tribulation as, as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be, right? So you think about the level of trouble that Mark's talking about there or Jesus is talking about there in Mark and then think about the tragic events that have happened through human history, Right? So what he's saying is that something's going to happen that is going to be way worse than anything else that's ever happened, okay? Now, just cast your mind back through human history, right? This includes the flood in Noah's... It's not in Noah, in Genesis 6, Noah, the flood of Noah, yeah? Where, like, the whole world was killed except for about, I don't know how many, like 10 people or something? Like, that's a pretty bad thing to happen. You with me on that? So what Jesus is saying is something is going to happen that's going to be more brutal than the most brutal thing that's ever happened. And if you know enough about history, you know there's been a lot of brutal things happen in history. Now, the thing that I think is the most brutal is the pouring of everyone's sins and junk into Jesus on the cross. Nothing is going to come close to that. And that's why I think um, Jesus is talking there about him being on the cross, okay? Now, this is interesting. I don't really know how to interpret this bit, but I just found this. This is an interesting statement, all right? If there's days of such tribulation that God has to cut short, otherwise no one will be saved, I'm going, why would trouble in a thousand years affect my salvation now? Do you get what I'm saying? But if that's talking about Jesus on the cross... It kind of makes a little bit more sense to me. I, I kind of think, oh, maybe, maybe that's Jesus on the cross. Maybe there's something special going on the cross where God needs to bring an end to it. Because if something, if it doesn't get done properly on the cross, no one does get saved. Anyway, I'm out on a limb. Is, it, is everyone okay so far? I've got a few more. Four. You've got this whole section here, which sounds like Jesus' second coming, right? But it actually sounds a whole lot like the cross as well. 
Do you notice that? There's a tribulation, Jesus paying the penalty for the sins of the world. There's a darkening, all right? It's going to go dark. The stars will fall from heaven. The powers in the heavens will be shaken. That actually happened on the cross, right? Colossians tells us that God put, through Jesus, God put the devil and all his powers to open ridicule and shame on the cross. Um, the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. I mean, that's, that's kind of what's happening in a sense on the cross, isn't it? But it's kind of in a reverse way. Um, and then you can kind of see there the statement there, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds. Uh, basically, the commentators actually say, well, that, that actually is the sending out of the church. Do you see that? So Jesus dies, he takes the tribulation, this uh, upheaval kind of happens, and then the church gets sent out to gather all of God's people. Um, and that's kind of what happens. All right, five. This, this is a real sticking point for me, right? Because Jesus himself says in Mark 13, 30, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So if you're talking about, it's just, that's an awkward one for me. Like, I'm not saying categorically that this is how you understand Mark 13, right? But that's an awkward verse to interpret. Now, you can do some fancy footwork and make generation mean something else, but it looks like generation there is a pretty plain reading of the word generation. Now, if what Jesus is talking about is the cross, that verse actually makes a whole lot of sense, okay? Six, uh, Mark 13, verse 32 uh, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. It e this verse even starts to make sense to me a bit more because Jesus was like a key player in the second coming, right? Now, one of the thoughts that I've had is it may actually well be that in Jesus' humanity when he was walking on the earth, he didn't know the hour when he was going to be crucified. Maybe that's actually talking about that. Some of you probably just thinking this guy should not be preaching today but it's okay just hang in all right we'll get there and then this one in mark 13 verse 35 to 36 uh, therefore stay away for you don't do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows are in the morning do you know what's interesting about that is when you get into mark 14 and 15 do you know that mark is really clear about times and he, and he states when it, whether it's evening or whether it's morning or what time it is. And it looks like he's following a similar pattern to what Jesus is actually saying there. So he goes, look at this. This, is, this happened at evening. And then this happened in the morning. And he actually states it. And so it looks like there's um, a bit of a connection there. So what's my... Um, you don't have to agree with me. All right? But I think there's probably... I'm, I'm growing in my confidence that this section is actually speaking of the cross... Uh, primarily okay and I've just given you some reasons why that's the case now that's a little bit of technical stuff let me just add this it does bear a striking resemblance doesn't it like if you if you look at that verse there those verses there for those of you who know the scriptures in the bible about the second coming of Jesus coming back it bears a striking resemblance to those doesn't it you agree with that it just does, right? So do you see, like, we could go right back to that, right? So here's, here's my basic thesis, if I can put it that way this morning, is that I think Jesus is talking about the cross, but I actually think that we're looking at a prophecy that's probably got multiple fulfillment, okay? And the reason why I think um, he's talking about the cross primarily and then the second coming 
is because there is a connection, there's a connection most of the way through the Bible between theophanies. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question and that's where we're going right now. So let me uh, get to my right slide. So I'm, I'm kind of trying to persuade you here, all right, um, that we've got a multiple fulfillment. Let me start with this. Is everyone happy with the statement, God's a God who reveals himself? Is that true? He's a self-revealer. He's also a God, though, isn't he, that, who conceals himself. He tends to reveal himself to those who are open to him, who are being saved, and he conceals himself from those who, uh, who don't want to have anything to do with him. If you go back into the Old Testament, no, people, Israel didn't have to guess about who God was. God made himself really, really clear. So a theophany is when, if you, if you take it really generally, a theophany is when a God discloses themselves. All right? It was originally, um, it's actually, the Greek original was used to describe a festival at Delphi at which the images of the gods were shown to the people. So a theophany is when a god makes themselves apparent to people. Um, this is different, like, like you people know about Romans 1, right, about how creation uh, displays God's glory all the time. Different to that, right? That's just a continuous kind of revelation. You can see the character of God in creation. A theophany is when God actually breaks into human history and makes himself known. Now, some of you would, um, you'd be thinking about some of these examples, right? So some of your examples are when Adam and Eve blow it in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3, what does God do? Well, he comes walking in the garden in the cool of the day and he makes himself seen. He makes himself apparent. You get to uh, Moses' call with the burning bush. What happens? God breaks into humanity, breaks into history, into the world and makes himself apparent to Moses. Uh, you get to uh, Exodus 19 when the Israelites get to Sinai, right? What have you got? You've got a cloud and you've got fire and you've got lightning. You've got a storm up there. What's God doing? Well, he's actually, it's a theophany. He's actually making his presence known uh, to people. Uh, you've, you've got another one at the dedication of Solomon's temple. Uh, Ezekiel was by the Kibar River and uh, God kind of made himself known. Sometimes he appears as a man, sometimes as an angel of Yahweh and sometimes just in, uh, in glory. So let me just run through really quickly characteristics of a divine theophany. First one is this, they're uh, divinely initiated, all right? Anyone know the story of the, uh, the prophets of Baal and uh, Elijah on Mount Carmel? What were the prophets of Baal trying to do? Does anyone know? Quick throw in. Yeah, yeah, they were trying to get their God to do something, weren't they? And it actually says they cut themselves and they tried to get their God to do something. What's really clear about when God engages and reveals himself is that humans can't conjure it up, all right? He initiates it and he does it. Uh, we don't kind of conjure it up. Another interesting thing about theophanies in the Bible is that they, um, they're temporary, all right? God comes for a little bit and he leaves, okay? Um, and it's different, as I said, from God's ongoing revelation in nature. When God appears, he often appears as a divine warrior or king surrounded by fire or in splendor or riding upon the winds and the clouds, all right? He just, there's a kind of, a, there's a power kind of about that. The, um, the next thing that uh, we notice about theophanies is um, there's a notable response to God's appearance 
all right? One of the things that typically happens when God appears is that creation, there's an upheaval of creation. Um, so you got in Mount Sinai, I was wrapped in smoke and, um, it, you know, Exodus 19, 18 says, the smoke from Sinai went up like a kiln. Um, so there's an upheaval of nature. Another response to God's appearance is that uh, recipients or people watching God's appearance respond with dread. Have you noticed that? Like when he kind of shows up, it's just kind of like, I'm done. That's the end of the section, right? Just get the mallet out and whack me on the head. That's it. It's over. All right? Um, Moses kind of says this in Exodus 3 verse 6 at the burning bush. He says, uh, oh, God says, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. So I was listening to this preacher a number of years ago, and um, a very famous preacher who remained nameless. He was talking to a friend of his, right? And, um, his, uh, and, and this preacher kind of understood theophanies pretty well, okay? And his friend said to him, he goes, you know what? He goes, every morning uh, Jesus shows up when I'm getting ready for the day. And, um, and this preacher kind of said, really? Like Jesus shows up? Yeah, yeah, seriously. When I'm shaving... And I'm looking in the mirror. He just shows up next to me in my bathroom. And this preacher just goes, I just got one question for you. When he shows up, do you stop shaving? <laughs> and the guy said, no, no, just keep shaving. All right. <laughs> and this preacher just goes, well, you probably haven't seen God, basically. Because every time that God shows up, the people are either flat on their face or it's just like, knock me on the head. That's going to be the end of it. All right. There's, just a, there's, a, there's a tangible kind of response to God's presence. Um, see some of you might go yeah but that was before Jesus right well not really because when John the disciple John gets his revelation about what's going to happen in the end times in Revelation 1 17 he sees Jesus in Revelation 1 and what's his response when I saw Jesus I fell at his feet as though dead same deal all right when God shows up there's a notable response to his appearance um and the consequence of God's appearance, um, sorry, the place where God appears becomes holy. Remember that with Moses in Exodus 3? What did God say to Moses when he, uh, when he saw God, I guess in a sense, in the burning bush? Anyone remember? Standing on holy ground. Yeah, take your shoes off. All right? That's just kind of what happens. You get in God's presence, it's holy, and all of a sudden it's, it's a bit freaky, you know? You can kind of get that in Isaiah 6 as well. Um, and the consequence of God's appearance is described. Now, what's really important to know about theophanies is that they are either to save or to judge or both. Okay? Um, one of the, the fascinating things about God's appearance, um, and I encourage you, this would be a good run for you to note down and read later on, Isaiah 35, verse 4 to 7. One of the effects of God showing up is actually nature becomes fertile. Like there are effects of God showing up. Um, it says in verse 4 to 7, Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God who will come and save you. The eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Do you get the vibe? So God shows up and good things start to happen. All right? There's, kind of, there's a saving, but there's also a judging kind of deal going on. Um, often uh, there's uh, a call like in Isaiah 6 when God shows up there's a call for him there was obviously a call for Moses when God showed up 
uh, but there's also judgment. And the theophany uh, concept, theologically, that, that is most often associated with judgment is the storm. Okay? You've read those, you've read those bits in the Bible, haven't you? That God's going to show up and there's going to be um, clouds and lightning and a whirlwind. Like whenever God's kind of showing up like that, it's kind of bad, bad news. Beautiful. See? That's great. Yes, absolutely. So Jesus came and there's a sense in which all of God's, I've got to say this properly, theophanic self-revelations culminate in Jesus becoming human and walking around on the planet. And like all of a sudden, this temporary God that just kind of ducks in and out all of a sudden he's taking on human flesh and is doing it for like 33 years. Now, it's a muted kind of expression of God's presence, isn't it? Because it's not drawing the fear that, um, that generally, I mean, it does happen with the disciples. You know the stories of the disciples where Jesus does something and they just go, whoa, who is this? You know? And it wasn't that long ago that we, we looked at the transfiguration, right? They go up and they say, whoa, like this is God, you know? And they're so stunned by it, they just saying, start saying dumb stuff because right? they, they just don't know what to do with it um, what i want to suggest to you is that the incarnation of jesus was a theophany but i actually think there was an unveiling somewhat of the theophany of of god on the cross with jesus and i think this is what mark is actually talking about if you think about what what's actually happening on the cross maybe i could are you okay if i throw it your way from what I've just told you about theophanies, what things are happening on the cross that tend to happen in a theophany? They're saving and judging. They're saving and judging, yeah. People, people fall on their face, yeah, because that, I mean, that, that kind of happens, doesn't it? It's like the centurion, when we get into the end of Mark, what does he say? He says, surely this man was the son of God. There's almost a sense like he's just going, well, this is a bit of, a, a bit of holy ground almost at this point in time. What else is happening? Sorry? Yeah, so there's an upheaval of nature. So you've got darkness, you've got an earthquake, all the rocks being split. Do you get what I'm saying? So you can kind of see on the cross that there's a bit of a theophany happening where Jesus is becoming clearer and clearer. Um, and, but what's weird about it is it's kind of reverse glory, isn't it? Like if you look at this scripture up here, you think it's going to be, you know, a Broadway production. But the glory of Jesus on the cross bearing the sins of the world is incredible isn't it that god would do that i mean there's probably no greater display of god's glory in a sense i mean he could come and overpower everyone and exert his strength and his power but there's probably no greater expression of god's glory that he would than that he would humble himself and die on a roman cross now anyone here watch the discovery channel there's an interesting article uh i know that you can't read that link but uh this will be on the website um I'll put this PDF uh, of the PowerPoint up on the website. But there's been a study done by some seismologists. Um, and they actually, they've worked out that there was a couple of earthquakes. There was one that was, uh, I think, about 31 AD. And there was another one. They've done some testing. There was another one between 26 and 34 AD. All right? And they actually, by reading the scriptures and working through history, they reckon, interestingly enough, this is in 2012, um, they reckon they've worked out that Jesus was um, crucified on Friday the 3rd of April. 
Anyway, interesting little uh, piece of data, but it's interesting that they actually arrived at that by drilling down and working out where the uh, earthquakes had actually happened. Now, why is this relevant? Well, for lots of reasons. But one big reason why this is relevant, right, is because I think this, in a similar way to theophanies always having a similar kind of pattern, this is a theophany that's happening at the end time as well. Do you see that? So it's kind of a prophecy that's got a dual fulfillment. Is it? Do you get me on that? You with me? You see, in some way, all theophanies point to the culmination of God being revealed in Jesus, but then actually continue to point to the final theophany where God will show up and uh, take us home with him. Isaiah talks about, in, uh, about that in Isaiah 24:21. He says, On that day the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. Revelation is particularly helpful in terms of what that final theophany is going to look like. Just uh, read through that with me. So Revelation tells us in 19 that, that Jesus is going to ride forth from heaven on a white horse to do battle and that God seated on a great white throne will decree final judgment on anyone whose name is not found written in the book of life. Listen to this. And I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. Do you see there's like a, there's a similar kind of pattern there? You've got nature just kind of, there's a bit of upheaval. Like God's presence actually just kind of interrupts all of that. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Um, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Yeah, we ought to probably just pause. That's fearful, isn't it? Like if, if you're not in Jesus' family today, that ought to be fearful for you. I mean, that, that would be a scripture to just say, well, I've got to get to that guy. <laughs> I've got to get on his team. That's what I need to do. I need to not be on the team that gets thrown into a lake that's, that's fire. Is everyone with me on that? Oh, that's, that's pretty logical, right? It's like, that is not going to be a good time being in a fiery lake. I don't want that kind of punishment. I want to be in that guy's team on his family. And you can see here on uh, the day when, when uh, Jesus comes back, do you see the same thing? On the cross, you've got people being saved and you've got people being judged, in a sense. When Jesus comes back, what have you got? People being saved and people being judged. Now, a quick note. It's, it's just worth, if, if Jesus is right, and I think he is, And if revelation is true about what's going to happen, like you, just, you need to stop, don't you? And just go, that next door neighbour of mine, who's a really good person, at the moment is probably going into that lake. If Jesus comes back this afternoon, they're in that lake, and they're in that lake forever. 
that co-worker that you work with, that family member, like that, that's the end game, isn't it? That's, that's kind of where it's all going. And we don't talk about this heaps and heaps at the project, but it's, it's a nice kind of, you know, checks and balances. It's, an, it's a nice check for us, you know, where you just, because you can just kind of end up in this thing where you just go, oh, I'll, I'll share Jesus as it comes along, and that's fine. And we talk about that a lot here. But it's this kind of note that strikes a note of urgency, doesn't it? So, I, yeah, I'll, I'll pray for him once a month. Well, maybe after reading that scripture and thinking about this, them actually getting in God's presence and not being on his team, you're just going, that's probably worth praying once a day. <laughs> you get what I'm saying? It's like straight up, without even going to anything else, which we're going to go to here in a minute, there's a note of urgency, isn't there? just kind of going this is this is for keeps everyone's playing for keeps in this thing and if someone is not in Jesus's family on his team it's not going to go well for them which leads us to this last point today a usual theophany response what do you not all the time but anyone like to have a guess what is the usual human response to theophany Aside from the fear thing, all right? Anyone like to have a punt? We won't put money on it because that's, that's evil. Hey? Yeah, they do, all right? They have to do something and usually, if I can just backload what you're saying there a little bit, usually it catches them off guard, doesn't it? It's like they're not ready. Now, do you remember in this passage, and I kind of highlighted it when I read it out, I made a point of emphasising how often Jesus says, stay awake. Why does he need to tell us to stay awake? I mean, this whole chapter, he's been going, stay awake, stay awake, stay awake, be alert, be alert, be alert, stay on your guard, stay awake. Like he's just, it's like the whole way through Mark 13. Why do you think he needs to say that so often? Yeah. Remind us to get ready, why else? What's that? Yeah, we don't know when he's coming else, why else? Yeah, all those. What does it tell you about the human tendency? Yeah, we get comfortable when we fall asleep. Like if you didn't have that tendency, it's like, you know, like if you, you don't have to go out to your kid and say, don't lie on the ground when your brother's mowing and have him run over the top of you <laughs> with the mower. Do you get what I'm saying? Like you don't have to say that 15 times because it's like they're not going to do that. That doesn't make sense. But if you've got to say something like five or seven or eight times, what does it tell you? It tells you human tendency for people to fall asleep. Now, strangely enough, what actually happened before Jesus was crucified? What, what happened with the disciples? They went to sleep. Yeah. So can you see here that this uh, this prophecy in mark 13 i mean that's another little piece of evidence maybe this is actually about the cross because they actually fell asleep and he's saying you need to stay awake stay awake stay awake stay awake and they went to sleep and they went to sleep and they went to sleep here it is and he came and found them sleeping and he said to peter simon are you asleep could you not watch one hour watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation on the final day we have regular reminders to stay alert and awake. 
Listen to this in Luke 21, verse 34 to 36 from Jesus. He says, watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place. You see... Do you see the similarity? Like we've got this prophecy that's probably about the cross, but we've got the second coming of Jesus sitting in behind it. And it's like there's so many similarities and things that line up. It's crazy. 2 Peter 3 verse 10 says this. He says, The day of the Lord, the last day, will come like a thief. Why is it like a thief? Yeah, because you don't have any warning. No warning. It's just going gonna, gonna to be unannounced. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. All right. I'm going to read a few more scriptures and then we're going to transition to communion. The New Testament, just go home and see if you can find all the verses on staying awake in the New Testament and being alert because Jesus is coming back. Well, there's heaps of them, right? I'm just going to give you a few. Um, and then we'll transition to communion. Who then is the faithful and wise servant, Jesus says in Matthew 24, whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards. Do you see that? My master's delayed. He's not coming well i don't know when he's coming so we can just have a bit of fun here and beat a few people up uh the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour that he does not know listen to this this is harsh and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth now one of the things that jesus said there didn't he it wasn't just it's it's because you might be sitting there you go yeah i'm not getting out with the drunkards you've got to be careful you know this is one of the things the cares of this life are one of the things that can put us to sleep isn't it what about this next one matthew 24 37 to 39 for as were the days of noah so will be the coming of the son of man for as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking marrying and giving in marriage until the day when noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away you hear that a usual human response to God's judgment. Now, Noah's not specifically a theophany because God doesn't actually show up, but God's judgment is there and people are not ready for it. Here's the last one, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 to 6. Listen to this. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord, the last day when he comes back to take you home, if you love him, will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security. Now, do you know what's really interesting? Uh, some of the conversations I've had and, um, with people as I've been working on this uh, end times eschatology stuff, you know, someone said to me, they said, they said this, they said, yeah, no, he's not coming for ages. <laughs> All right? Now, that's actually starting to sound a little bit like that bit that I just read in 1 Thessalonians 5, isn't it? Like there's peace and security. Yeah, it's all sweet. He's not coming for ages. Well, how do you know? Maybe he is. Maybe he's coming back in 10 minutes. 
I mean, one of the commentators I read, and I, I was going to put the quote up, but it would just make us too long. He said, the incarnation of Jesus, the death on the cross, and the resurrection, and then uh, the second coming are all part of the one kind of story event. So that's why you realize that every day since Jesus rose from the dead and went back to heaven, we're in the last days. So you just got to, like, when I thought about that, I thought, yeah, so God wants to finish the story doesn't he like that part of the story and he wants to finish the whole of human history while people are saying there is peace and security then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape but you are not in darkness brothers for that day to surprise you like a thief for you are all children of light children of the day we're not of the light sorry of the night or of the darkness so then listen let us not sleep as others do but let us keep awake and be sober where are we headed do you know where we're headed if you love jesus and you're uh, in his family this is where you're headed you're actually headed to an ongoing eternal theophany that's what god's going to bring about listen to this prophecy from isaiah 60 verse 19 the sun shall be no more your light by day nor for brightness shall the moon give you light but the lord will be your everlasting light and your god will be your glory and this is the identical concept in revelation 21 listen to this in heaven i saw no temple in the city for its temple is the lord god the almighty and the land and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of god gives its light give it light gives it light and its lamp is the lamb by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there do you see what's going on here is on the cross you know what god did is he kind of had the marriage ceremony with us he legally joined himself to us that's the uh, biblical word uh, justification it's a he justified us on the cross he made a legal arrangement with us on the cross he paid for our sins he declared us righteous but do you know what he did it's kind of like he ducked off before the reception <laughs> that's what it is he ducked off before the reception and he's coming back to take you back to do the reception right why do i say that because revelation talks about blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb so one day you get to have a wedding reception with jesus i mean imagine the kind of food that's going to be there imagine how good that's going to be a good party right you with me like that's it's kind of like that's a good party to go to all right every other party on this earth is going to be like eating jats you know and that's all you eat just sitting down and we're having a party we've got a box of jats i used to think it was hilarious at the school when i taught here is that uh, anytime students would have a bottle of soft drink and some biscuits they go we're having a party today and you just go that's it you just need soft drink and a, and a box of biscuits and you got yourself a party that's going to be a party isn't it don't you want to be at that one and so this is kind of the hope for us right and here's, here's what I'd love for you to just wrap your head around as much as you possibly can, is my prayer for you today is that you would have a hope-inspired spiritual insomnia. You hear that? A hope-inspired spiritual insomnia. There is something grand coming, and you don't know when it's coming. It could be today. So that, that needs to, I mean, what Jesus is saying is what's coming needs to affect what you're doing now. And the, the rest of the New Testament is saying, stay awake, because what's coming needs to affect what you do 
Now, are you asleep? Are you asleep? Do you live with that kind of hope that there is a culmination coming? Does it affect the way that you do your life? You see, asleep is when you've reoriented yourself to make this place home. Is that what you've done? Have you made this place home? Have you, are you more like One Direction than what you think? Where you disconnected your deeper longings for eschatological longings of restoration. You disconnected that off and you've just kind of decided to just do a life here on this earth. Now, most of you who follow Jesus would go, no, I haven't done that. Or have you functionally done it? Does it look like that? Would it look like that to someone else? Do you have a hope that things will be restored, that God will come back for you? Or you're going to need to be ready for that, whenever that moment is.